This is Nikki Toyama Sito, the executive director of Christians for Social Action, and your host for 20 Minute Takes. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Jonathan Tran. He's a professor of theology at Baylor University and also the author of Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. This episode is a part of our series of conversations of leaders in the Asian American and Pacific Islander community in honor of AAPI Heritage Month. Dr. Tran introduces the idea of racial capitalism as he draws from expertise from theology, economics, history, and culture to understand and place Asian Americans in a wider conversation about racism. Dr. Jonathan Tran, thank you so much for joining us on 20 Minute Takes. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor. Well, we're really glad to have you here, particularly as we're focusing on Asian American and Pacific Islanders and and sort of their voice in this uh, church space and uh, the justice space. Um, You know, one of the things uh, that I wanted to ask you about um, is as I engage with racial justice, I think one of my primary lenses is through sort of uh, an identity base, understanding my identity in the context of my faith and and then how that drives me to respond. Um, But I believe that. your, your recent book has uh, opened up some of the challenges that that kind of approach to anti-racism work has, particularly for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Can you say a little bit about what it is that you've noticed? Yeah, and it's a great question. It really gets to the heart of the book. The book argues that at the moment, we really focus our anti-racist efforts on specific racial identities. And so racism is a story about particular racial identities, namely white people in relationship to black people. You might throw some others in, but that's the primary story. And it goes also then to the particular remedies one might imagine. So let's say one tells the story of American racism in narrow terms of the terrible things that white people do to black people. There's obviously a significant part of that that is true. But the reality about race, right, and racial identity is that race itself is never just about race. And so what I try to do is step back and ask, what is the larger context in which race does work? And that's the context of political economy. And so the argument or the criticism about what I call identitarian frames of reference is that they they tell too narrow a set of stories and therefore offer too narrow a set of remedies. We need to rather step back and ask, how is racial identity working within the larger political economy of how racism works? That's what I'm trying to do here. Okay. And so then can you uh, um, unpack for us a bit about this concept of racial capitalism? Yeah. So I ask people to think about this question. If it's largely agreed upon, almost universally, that racism is bad, that it's evil, uh, that it's unproductive, supposedly, then why does it persist? Why does it hold such power? Why does it continue to dominate so much of American life? And my answer is uh, racism works. I mean, racism persists because racism works. It does stuff. It enables a society. And so what racism is, in my definition, is justification for systems of domination and exploitation. So you have a world of dehumanizing inequality and oppression. That world is obviously morally problematic and questionable. 
you justify it by putting a veneer of race talk on top of it, right? It goes, here's the practical example. You drive around my city of Waco. Um, you see that certain neighborhoods have strong investment, schools, access to medical care. Uh, they're zoned in certain kinds of ways. And you notice they're populated by certain kinds of people. When you go to the poor parts of town and when you have that lack of investment, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of, say, uh, grocery stores, uh, financial districts, you say to yourself, well, why is this? And you say, well, it's because of them. It's natural to who they are. It's about their race, right? And so what racial capitalism is, and I think what racism generally is, is a form of gaslighting. It's a way of blaming those who suffer domination you blame them for it. You say it's natural to them. It's their race. So what racial capitalism is, is a form of demo, I mean, capitalist domination and exploitation that takes the veneer of respectability insofar as race is used to explain itself. Hmm. Hmm. And then, so then how is that, um, how does that address some of the uh, uh, narrowness that you said came from the current uh, identity-oriented anti-racism work? Right. So it's not the narrow story of um, racial animus as the driver. So when we think about racism, we tend to think in rather hyperbolic terms, right? So when we think about the racist, we think about the Klan's member. We think about the red-faced sheriff with the attack dog. We think about the redlining mortgage worker. They have racist intent, animus, stereotypes, discriminatory thoughts in their mind. They act on it as individuals. In this picture, societal and structural realities are secondary, if that. That is, sometimes the individual hyperbolic racism rises to the level of structures and systems. I think that story largely has it backwards. Racism is a structural systemic reality that produces diseased individual imaginations, and it goes in that direction. If we want to contend with racism, we need to think about these larger structures and systems, how they're operating, the role race plays in those stories. If we focus too much on the narrative of the uh, racial individual and the racial identity of that individual, then in a sense, we've missed the uh, the forest for the trees. Hmm. So then um, if we could take the specific experience of Asian Americans, um, can you help us understand a bit about um, placing the Asian American story within like an anti-racist framework um, and then some of what actually pops or comes out? when you use a more robust uh, framework like, uh, you know, like what you're talking about with racial capitalism. Yeah. In some sense, um, my book is less about Asian Americans. It's less an argument about Asian Americans. It's an argument through Asian Americans. It takes the Asian American experience and broadcasts out from that. What do we learn about race and racism through the prism of Asian American life? And so what I imagined myself doing is imagine I took a, you know a personal experience I think that a lot of us go through you know in different places in my case in the academy in higher education I took the experience of what I describe as Asian Americans being marginalized by anti-racism after having first been marginalized by racism so I take that experience and ask, why are we being marginalized? What is it about the race concepts within anti-racism that almost necessarily produces the marginalization? And what I then try to imagine is then Asian Americans as a kind of proverbial miner's canary 
in the canary of American race conversations. That is, you release the miners, you release the miners canary of Asian Americans into that conversation. The idea of the metaphor here is insofar as the mine is dangerous, right? The bird gets sickened or dies. That's largely what happens to Asian Americans in this conversation. That's why we perpetually don't count, have very little political capital in these conversations. People will say things like Asian Americans are not really victims of racism, et cetera, et cetera. So then what I say is, okay, let's take that experience and see what we can learn. So rather than, in a sense, trying to shoehorn Asian Americans into that story, which I think we have done for a long time with Asian within Asian American studies, in some sense, is to con- concede the ground and say, we simply don't count. Now, let's see what that tells us about the larger story. Ah, I see. So going through the Asian American experience and sort of seeing uh, the, the frailty of both the solutions and the analysis has sort of said, okay, this is actually not fully encompassing uh, the fullness of kind of a racialized exactly right. So, you know, this in some sense just mimics moves within Black Marxism or the Black radical tradition, right? So, for example, uh, Cedric Robinson in Black Marxism begins by saying, you know how I learned about how race really operates, how I learned that race is not really about difference, not about biology, but about labor and property. The way I learned it was about political economy is I looked at how race was being used among different categories of white people in England. And I realized, right, the distinction between the English and the Irish, the English and the Slavs, what was described in terms of race. And that allowed me to get behind the curtain. This is not really about difference. This is about differentiation. It's not really about diversity. It's about stratification, right? It's about labor distinctions. The exact same thing can be said about Asian Americans. Now think about the absurdity, right, of categorizing the incredible diversity that is Asian America as a racial category. That itself should put us on the thought that there's something fishy going on here, that that clearly doesn't work. So what work is race really doing? And what I describe then is if you look at the experience of Asian and Asians in America, especially in the first couple hundred years of our time here, it's about labor, it's about migration, about guest workers, about labor agents, um, about the manipulation of an economy, right? Exploitation, domination, the pitting of people of color against each other, the pitting of the working class whites against working class blacks, against migrant Chinese. And so once you put Asian Americans in the story, it helpfully illuminates the role of race, which is what I said earlier, uh, this justifying role within a larger political economic system of domination. That's why if Asian Americans in their anti-racist modes focus simply on racial identity, they miss the forest for the trees. Ah, I see. I see. Now, um, you know, I think one of the things I really appreciate is that you draw from multiple different areas of study and you pull them together and kind of help them have a conversation with each other in a way that I think is um, integrative as well as, uh, you, you know, for, for those of us who are trying to live sort of holistic lives that, you know, we sort of can't separate out, you know, the political and the economics and the, and the faith side. Can you say a little bit about, um, you know, as you think about Christian theology, Christian ethics, and how that is interacting with the race conversation, um, what do you imagine uh, would be the way that that dialogue uh, could play out or would, would be helpful, the conversation between sort of Christian faith and ethics and our current race conversation? 
Yeah, that's a great question and really insightful in terms of what the book has to do uh, and is trying to do. So part of the answer is biographical, right? So I'm a theologian and theologians are those who think they need to know everything, uh, which usually (laughs) means we know about an inch deep of some things. But at least we feel responsible to multiple discourses, right? That the, the work of theology isn't, say, just reading the Bible, it's reading the Bible with the world fully in mind. And in fact, it thinks that reading in the Bible helps us do that, just like we think having the world fully in mind helps us illuminate what scripture is saying, right? And so it's this vocational role of the theologian that you need to know economic theory, you need to know political philosophy, right? And you need to know them in relationship to what Amos says, right? The minor prophet in relationship to what Augustine says, right? So on and so forth. So you need to have an integrative mind to begin with. That's a vocational obligation of theology. But there's also a strategic role. I realized I was making a massive argument. I was attempting a significant intervention. I would need all the help I could get. So I forced (laughs) myself to learn all these discourses, right? So I'm I'm, for example, a humanist. I work mostly with texts and arguments, um, with theory, I, I forced myself to learn a bunch of social science theory. I learned to kind of develop empirical methods to understand the work of history. And so uh, all this was necessary if I was going to make as large as an intervention as I thought we needed to make. So, I mean, because at this point, the issue about racism is a deeply conceptual, theoretical, abstract set of questions embedded within a highly set of practical, political a minute questions, right? And so it's the whole shebang. Uh, and so I just realized strategically I was going to need as much as I could get to get my mind around this and then to offer some way forward. Now, whether I succeeded in any of that, at least I felt uh, I knew I needed to try it. <laughs> so kind of walking around the question from all of these different fields to see if anything pops. I think uh, for you as a Christian, as a person of faith, um, how is it that um, that the, those insights or, or, or the different ways that you are approaching your faith, how does that interact with some of the questions that have been risen about racial capitalism? Um, yeah. So I became a Christian as an adult at about age 20. And so, you know, I think for a lot of folks raised in the church, and as you know, especially if you're ex-evangelical in some way or post-Christian, uh, there's a kind of bi- biography you're writing yourself outside of Christianity, out out of the church. Um, well, I'm always writing my way into the church. Like if you're raised in unbelief, um, n- bl- not believing, then that's in a sense your default position you always revert to that. And so faith is something I always have to intentionally choose. Just like if you're ex-evangelical, you're always having to intentionally choose out of it, right? And so so because I was raised this way, then I'm always... And so this book in some ways is an act of faith. It's trying to make good on what I take to be the grammar of Christian speech of what has to be the case, right, if the gospel is right. Uh, and so it's it's really a book of, say, logical inference. Um, if I believe this, if we believe this, then these things have to be true. So let me give you an example. In the current academic theological discourse, it's the, the, the trendiness is around poo-pooing on the church. It's on poo-pooing on Christianity's racist history, and it's on poo-pooing positive, constructive remedies going forward. That There's just serious doubt that Christianity could do anything good just because it's done so much harm. 
Now, whether we've done harm goes without question, and there is plenty of evidence for this. But it is also an act of faith on the part of people who speak Christian language, who are Christians, to think our way into possibilities of what God is doing and can still do in the context of overwhelming damage on the part of the church. And 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 that's less, I would describe that in this context less as say a kind of, you know, the virtue of courage on my part. It's just what I have to believe because I still want to remain Christian. Because in some sense, what's the alternative to look at the, the evidence for all the reasons not to believe, for all the reasons Christianity, have, I mean, Christians have been the worst argument in the history of the church for the church. So, you know, I can either think myself back into unbelief or as a theologian, think my way forward into the kind of commitments that I have to believe insofar as I speak Christian. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Because I think I think that's some of the language we talk about is uh, stirring the imagination, the Christian imagination. And it's it's not meant to be wishful thinking, but it is to be what is the natural extension if we interrogate what is limiting our understanding of what you know, faith looks like lived out today, you know, right. That sort of a thing. And, and that is courage, right? That is fortitude to be able to do that in the face of so many counterexamples on the truthfulness of the gospel. I mean, one of the things you think, uh, at least I think as a person not raised in the church is if, if scripture isn't materially demonstrated as being what it says about itself, then this, this, this thing probably is not true. And so I'm constantly looking for pieces of evidence, available light to suggest it is true. And I think part of what we try to do is we do that because we need hope. I mean, because there's just so many counterexamples of the opposite um, that are going to, I mean, they're right. I mean, faith, Christian faith, or any type of religious faith, or I think any type of hope at this point lives on the razor's edge between despair and hope. And I think it's, at minimum, a type of self-care to say, I'm going to choose to believe and find reasons for belief, um, while also recognizing all the evidence for unbelief. Yes. No, I, I, I appreciate that. I think one of the things I've, I, I uh, was helpful for me was this example that you laid forward of Redeemer Church in San Francisco. Do you mind just unpacking a bit of, of that and um, the story that you found there? So if racial capitalism is institutional, structural, systemic exploitation, domination that accrues to outrageous material consequences for, uh, namely for poor people, which of of course we know accrues disproportionately to people of color, then the remedy cannot be individual things, right? It can't be narrow racial stories. An example of a narrow racial story is to ascribe the to place the blame on so-called whiteness, right? And so let me let me give you an example. We let's say we look at gentrification, which is an enormously complex reality. But we say, well, gentrification, what that is, is, you know, and this is the narrow version, that is white people moving in on black people because they're driven by anti-blackness and it's just part of their whiteness to do that kind of stuff. Then the, what's the remedy? It's gonna be to correct white people to cancel white people, to remove them from the equation. I think that is theoretically mistaken. It describes the problem inaccurately, and it's politically disastrous. It's strategically the wrong move, right? What we need to do is fight our way into coalitions, find our way into honest conversations across difference, however that difference is described. 
the reality of what gentrification is, is it's undoubted that there are racial lines in there, but gentrification is set up by things like the lack of a city's investment in its neighborhoods, zoning codes, the way pay scales are set up, right? The way economies are set up in terms of who gets, who counts and who doesn't. These are the drivers. It's the same story, right? We, we think about the mortgage industry in terms of redliners, but what we're increasingly finding in the evidence is that redlining was largely redundant because it was driven by financial markets where white flight was the driver, right? So these aren't people who intentionally are racist, these are people who are unintentionally, implicitly racist, and they drive up economies and they, you know, property values and you know local taxation and mixed economies. They all work in these kinds of ways. So that's a that's a broad, complex story, right? And so now going back to your question, what I if that's what racial capitalism is, is this broad, complex story about economic domination that race then is used to excuse, justify, facilitate, enable. Then the second part of the book had to have a positive, constructive example that equally laid uh, the burden of proof, right? Equally laid um, the weight on a counter institution. And so what I offered then is a particular local church in San Francisco. I first tell the story of this part of San Francisco as an effect of racial capitalism, right? Uh, the, um, the most marginalized part of San Francisco, the Bayview-Hunters Point, which has always been literally at the margins of San Francisco's economy, which, as we know, is one of the most powerful metropoles in the world. Um, most of us often think about it as a liberal bastion of significant wealth, and undoubtedly it is that. But it's fueled by exploitation and domination of dark-skinned peoples, right, in the Bayview-Hunters Point area. That's the large story. So then what's one of the countermeasures? What's an alternative? What, what is a form of remedy, remedy? Well, then it's the opposite of racial capitalism. It's a type of community that locally invests in local communities, local peoples, and reimagines things like markets, schools, education, relationships, friendships. And that's largely what this Redeemer Church has done. So we're talking about people who, you know, like like both of us who have backgrounds in university. Uh, in the case of many people at this church, they often come from uh, histories of privilege, um, of access. They graduate from places like UCLA and Berkeley and Stanford. And it's people who, once they got a little bit of Jesus in them, right, um, and realize the relationship, say, between Jesus and social justice, the good work you all try to think about a lot, then it led to certain convictions that certain things no longer became alternatives for their lives, and certain other things became the only way they could imagine living. Um, and so over two decades, they move into um, the invite of you know some churches locally there. They, they move into the Bayview Hunters Point area. They develop friendships. Out of these friendships, right, the world is recast for them. Uh, and then out of these friendships, they recognize the kind of practical ways they can be neighbors. And what neighbors need there is they need good access to good education. They need uh, they need local forms of finance that support local businesses. Uh, so that's what they've done over these uh, these 20 years is, you know, built up a church that has a software company that redistributes money. One of the one of the effects of the redistribution is a local a local private school that educates uh, kids in the community, which not surprisingly are kids of color, um, and they give them a fantastic education, right? And so uh, this is what I meant earlier is if the gospel doesn't produce these material realities, it's not clear that it's true. Um, 
you know, so this would not be a sufficient condition for proving that, but it is, you know, the church's faithfulness is at least a necessary one. Yeah. Well, I love that. Thank you for sharing that picture of, of a church, of this community of faith, uh, living out their faithfulness in ways that are both personal, but also really engaged with the systems and structures of our society in a really holistic way. Yeah. And and part of that holism is recognizing they're, they're not doing it because they're, you know, supposedly very virtuous heroes who are saving people. Lots of times they're doing this out of acts of repentance, of of repentance from their own perpetuation and participation in in systems of injustice. And so they're they're just thinking to themselves, I can either lean into a political economy where I exploit other people just um, as it just as par for the course of how our society is set up, Mm -hmm. or I can intentionally choose a different life. Yes. Uh, and that's what these folks have done. Yes. Well, thank you. Dr. Jonathan Tran, thank you so much uh, for your time and for joining us here on 20 Minute Takes. Thank you for having me on. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. We're produced and edited by David DeLeon. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and the music is done by Andre Henry. You can find us on the web at christiansforsocialaction.org. Give us five stars, write a review, and share about the podcast with your friends.